Welcome to the book reading program of 3ABN Australia Radio. Does your faith need a boost? Do you think that miracles only happened in Bible times? Think again. Compiled by Remnant Publications, the book Get Ready for a Miracle recounts true stories that prove that when we step out in faith, God displays His power in undeniable ways. Here is our reader, Sandra Ashton. This story is entitled, Kidnapped. Isaiah chapter 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Ecuador? Us? Oh, I don't think so. These were my sincere thoughts during the summer of 2013. We had lived in Costa Rica for two years and found it a struggle to adjust to the culture while we were there. I was not anxious to leave the US or try to adjust yet again. I was very resistant to the idea even though my husband, Don, had said a few times in the past year that he felt we were going to live in another country. I would just say no. Of course, when we say no, we must be careful. There is, after all, a saying, man plans and God laughs. As Don and I prayed for God's perfect will in our lives, we looked for areas near our home in Tennessee to be close to my grandchildren. God began to bring situations into my life that convicted me to open my thoughts to the possibility that Ecuador may just be where God wanted us. I surrendered to God's plan for our lives and we moved to Ecuador on November 20, 2013. We settled in Cuenca, Ecuador, and planned to move to Vilcabamba after we took care of our residency papers. We met a man named Adrian and his girlfriend, Carly, the third day in Ecuador on the city bus and considered our meeting a divine appointment. Adrian introduced himself to us as a cardiologist from Los Angeles who travelled around Ecuador conducting seminars for other cardiologists. Later, we thought this to be providential when I came down with pneumonia and Don had a heart attack. He became a good friend and went with us on many family travels, always concerned for our safety. He helped us through so many difficult times over the next nine months. On Tuesday, August 12, Don and I had already gone to bed. Our friend, Adrian, was staying at the house with us. We had just moved to our new home in Vilcabamba, a four-hour drive from Cuenca. Adrian had come to see our new rental home and was sleeping in our guest room. At approximately 10.30pm, two men entered our home and our kidnapping nightmare began. I was awakened by loud, angry voices outside my bedroom door. Immediately, my bedroom door opened and a strange man entered the room. He quickly came to me and pulled me out of bed, telling me to remain quiet, saying, No grita! Do not scream! He wrapped his arms around me, covering my mouth with his hand and dragged me into the guest room where Adrian was. That room was the only lighted room in the house. Adrian was lying on the floor with his hands and feet bound. Then the strange man took me into the semi-dark living room. He sat me on the love seat facing the exterior door that was standing ajar. I looked in unbelief. There were no signs of anyone breaking in. I wondered if we forgot to lock the door, but that is something we never forgot to do. Who could have opened the door? Surely Don would not open the door during the night? 
My thoughts were interrupted as a second man brought Don to the living room and sat him on the couch. He started wrapping duct tape around Don's head, hands and feet. I remember being very disturbed by seeing this. Adrian was dragged into the living room and kicked several times. He made groaning sounds. The men said several times, Where is your money? We just want your money. The man who dragged me from my bed took me back into the bedroom and I opened the closet door. I was still confused and it was dark. I lifted out a purse I was not using and the man grabbed it. It was almost empty. He impatiently took me back into the living room and started wrapping my head with duct tape. I was led over to the kitchen counter area by the door. I could see just a little under the bottom edge of the tape. They grabbed the purse I was currently using off the counter in the kitchen along with my cell phone. My purse contained my credit cards, passport, cedula or Ecuadorian ID and a little money. I remembered thinking, take everything you want, but please let me stay here. I was praying aloud and realised that Adrian was standing, unbound, next to me. I pushed the duct tape up so I could see and I saw Don fall on the floor. He hit hard and groaned. I reacted with more earnest prayers. I remember looking at Adrian and wondering what was wrong with him. He showed no compassion when Don fell. This is the man who had been so caring and concerned about our safety. I was begging God to help us. Adrian sternly and matter-of-factly said to me, Sherry, you need to calm down. It will be worse if you don't calm down. One of the men dragged Dong back into the bedroom and the other started dragging me out the door. This was my worst fear. In my head, I was screaming and praying, Please take anything, but let me stay here. My hands were not bound, but my head was wrapped with duct tape over my mouth and they had pulled the tape down over my eyes again. The duct tape wrapped around the back of my head, around my neck and down my body a ways. Each time I pushed the tape up, someone pulled it back down over my eyes. I fought against them and the two men struggled to get me into our car. They pushed and pulled me onto my stomach on the back seat. They shut the car door with part of my left foot stuck in the door frame. I tried to pull my foot out, but could not. The car started down the bumpy gravel road, driving very fast. After what seemed to me a long time, I finally got the man's hand pulled down from my mouth and nose, and I could breathe. I said through the tape in Spanish that my foot was stuck in the door. The car slowed down and the door opened. I pulled my foot out and the car continued. Adrian was driving and told me to please cooperate because the man in the front seat had a gun in his side. They covered my head with a coat and repeatedly pushed my head down toward the floorboard of the car to make sure no one saw me as we drove. I prayed fervently that God would cause a police roadblock or someone would see something suspicious and call the police. I was begging God to set us free. I was very afraid. After a while, I realised what I was doing. I was telling God how and when to free me. I was not surrendered to God's plan. I realised that God knew right where I was and what the future would be. I changed my prayer to one of surrender to God's will. I prayed that God's perfect will would be done, that I would be freed in His perfect timing, and that all of this would bring glory to Him. I also surrendered to the idea that I could die. 
I prepared myself mentally and confessed my sins, claiming 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. During the first part of the four-hour car ride to Cuenca, the kidnappers were arguing in Spanish about whether or not to kill me and talking about going to Colombia. I remembered the story of how Richard Vaughnbrand, Voice of the Martyrs, had been imprisoned for preaching the gospel. I remembered how he said the more they beat him, the more the love of God rose up in his heart for his persecutors. He said he couldn't help saying to them, I love you and God loves you. I forgive you. I began to pray for the men in the car, my kidnappers, mean men who had hurt my husband and me, men who said they were planning to take my life. I prayed that God would forgive them, give me forgiveness in my heart for them and fill the car with peace and love. I chose to forgive them no matter what they did to me or what they had done to Don. I soon felt as though God's love was radiating from me to them. I chose to love them and prayed that God's peace would fill the car and all the evil spirits would be pressed back. Shortly after beginning to pray for them, there was a difference in the environment, in the anger level in the car, the arguing stopped and a supernatural calm and quiet came over the car. I felt God's peace fill me and I completely trusted God to do what was best for me. We all sat in silence as I continued to choose to love them and pray for them. I could praise God in the midst of the horrific event and know that whatever God chose for my life, it would bring the most glory to Him. Whether I lived or died, I surrendered to God's will for Don and me. What peace! I still fought moments of terror as well, but I continued to fight those moments by singing in my head, quoting scripture and recounting Bible stories of victory. I also remembered a friend whose family members were missionaries who had an orphanage in Haiti many years ago. The father was travelling to the large city for supplies when he was stopped and attacked along the road. They beat him and left him for dead. He was able to get to a local home for help. The president of the country heard what had happened, gave them protection and helped them with their orphanage. It turned out to be the very best thing that could have happened for their orphanage. I prayed that whatever was best for Ecuador and for the spreading of the gospel would happen. If God would be glorified with my death, then okay, I surrendered to it. If God would be better glorified with my life, then I accepted that. I paid close attention to our journey. There are many curves through the mountains. I had driven the road between Vilcabamba and Cuenca several times and knew of a few places that were unique. I knew we were on the road to Cuenca. The kidnappers mentioned going to Colombia a few more times. That would be about a 15-hour drive from Vilcabamba, much of it during daylight hours. I sure didn't want to go to Colombia. After a short while, the car started slowing down more and stopping at times for what I assumed were traffic lights. I could tell there were more street lights from where the tape didn't touch my cheeks and light came through. Then we stopped. The man pushed my head down and leaned over the top of my back, almost as though he was sleeping with his head on my back. After a minute or so, we slowly moved forward and I heard Adrian ask the man in the front seat, Do you want me to stop here? The man replied, Yes. The car stopped and the back door opened. 
They pulled me out of the car and my bare feet touched the cold, smooth surface. I could tell we were outside from the cold night air and typical night sounds. They led me a short distance and I remember being surprised when I felt a change to smooth tile under my feet. A tiled walkway? Where could we be? It was very dark and then a light was turned on. They led me into a room with a cold concrete floor. They had me sit down on a blanket on the floor and bound my hands behind my back with zip ties. They also put zip ties around my ankles to hold them together but did not make them very tight. The man pushed a small, milky white plastic bottle to my mouth. He told me to drink it. I refused to drink it twice, but the man persisted. Finally, the third time, I allowed the liquid into my mouth, waited a couple of seconds, then spat it on my lap where it was absorbed into my pyjamas. My lips felt tingly and numb for a while. Adrian told me that the kidnappers wanted him to tell me that there was a man outside the door that would come in and rape me if I screamed. He said that he saw the man and he was very scary looking. I had worked the tape around my mouth with my lips and it had slid down. They tied a soft cloth around my mouth to the back of my head and pulled it tight. A man instructed me to lie down. This was difficult with my hands tied behind my back, so he guided my body down on my side with my right shoulder holding the weight of my upper body on the hard floor in a very uncomfortable position. A quilted blanket was placed over me. Then the light went out. The door shut. I heard a key lock the door and it was silent. I worked the cloth off my mouth. I didn't know if they had left Adrian in the room with me, so I called softly, Adrian, but no answer. I was alone. It was cold and quiet. I was thankful for the warm blanket, but soon tried to change positions. Each movement made the zip ties tighter. I tried lying on my stomach, but that wasn't good either. I pulled my feet up behind my back. Then, with my hands, I worked the zip ties over the heel of one foot and was able to free my ankles. The ties on my wrists were very tight now. I was concerned about the kind of damage the zip ties would do to my hands. I tried to loosen them, but could not. I lay in the silence, praying, singing spiritual songs to myself, reciting scripture verses, and remembering every Bible story of victory I could think of. I thought of Daniel in the lion's den and asked God to work out the miracle that I needed to free me from the storage room. I thought of the three Hebrews and the fiery furnace and asked God to take me through this trial and refine the dross out of me to give me courage to die for him or live for him, to do whatever was his will and whatever would bring him the glory. I remembered the story of Moses and the parting of the Red Sea, asking God to part the Red Sea for me. I identified with Paul and Silas in stocks, bound, in prison and in pain, yet they sang. I prayed for the earthquake that would set me free. I quoted from Ellen White's The Ministry of Healing, page 417. Above the distractions of the earth, He sits enthroned. All things are open to His divine survey. And from His great and calm eternity, He orders that which His providence sees best. I also quoted from Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, page 71. The Father's presence encircled Christ, and nothing befell Him but that which infinite love permitted for the blessing of the world. Here was His source of comfort, and it is for us. 
He who is imbued with the Spirit of Christ abides in Christ. The blow that is aimed at him falls upon the Saviour, who surrounds him with his presence. Whatever comes to him comes from Christ. He has no need to resist evil, for Christ is his defence. Nothing can touch him except by our Lord's permission. I repeated Romans 8.28 All things that are permitted work together for good to those who love God. I surrendered to God's will for my life. I accepted that this trial had crossed God's heavenly desk and was stamped with approval. I remembered Ellen White's writing in Ministry of Healing, page 489. All experiences and circumstances are God's workmen, whereby good is brought to us. Yes, God agreed to allow this to happen to us, to develop us in faith and bring good to us. I was earnestly praying for Don. I didn't know what they had done to him and knew that he would be very anxious for my safety. After a while, I struggled and sat up. I rocked back and forth for a long time, trying to stay warm. The zip ties were now embedded in my wrists. I kept opening and closing my hands to keep the circulation going. I was concerned that the blood supply was being cut off. I couldn't keep the blanket over me as I moved around. I pulled it with my teeth, trying to cover myself, but this did not work well. After a long time, I heard construction noise. I could see a little more light under the door by tipping my head back and looking under the tape. I was sure it was now daylight hours, and I was certain I was somewhere in Cuenca. The noise of construction was very loud, so I knew workers had arrived. Still concerned about the scary-looking man who would rape me if I screamed, I had been quiet, but I mentally began reasoning that it would be better to be raped than murdered. I pictured a man standing outside, as Adrian said, listening for any noise from me. Then I thought of how suspicious it would be for a man to be standing outside the door while others were working at the construction site. The construction noise was so loud that I thought I must be in a storage building near the construction. With great effort, I stood up and circled the room, feeling everything with my hands behind my back. There were only suitcases and boxes in the room, nothing to cut the zip ties from my wrists. Courage began to build in me, and I started having clear, logical thoughts in that cold, dark storage room. I was able to overcome the gripping fear of being raped. I later discovered that this courage began about the same time Don made some phone calls to our family in the United States between 8.30 and 9am, which brought about an abundance of prayers for my release. Thoughts started coming to me like, touch the door with your foot. I touched the door and it made a noise, which was the first noise I had dared to make. Making even that small noise made my heart jump and I had to fight my fears. I also thought, ask God to carry your voice to the right ears, not the wrong ears. I found the courage to make more noise, first singing a little louder and then quoting scripture aloud. Strength started to enter my body so I could stand, hit the door with the heel of my foot and yell through the crack. Each time I prayed, God, carry my weak voice to the right ears, not the wrong ears. I kicked at the door and yelled through the crack of the door, Ayudame, por favor! Abra la puerta, por favor! Help me, please! Open the door, please! I continued to pray fervently that God would carry my voice over the noise of the construction and to the right person. I prayed that God would send someone close who would hear me. 
I shouted and banged on the door for a long, long time. Finally, around 11 a.m., 12 hours after my abduction, a man spoke to me from outside the door. Ola? he said. Ola! I replied. Ajudame! Por favor! Abra la puerta! Por favor! I told him that men had locked me inside the night before and asked him to open the door. He turned on the light from outside the door and asked me if I had light. Yes, I have light, I responded, thanking him over and over. That simple action was amazing. I was no longer in the dark. I was discovered. I was safe. I would not be killed. Several keys were tried in the door as they continued to tell me to be calm. They were trying to find the right key. Finally, the door opened. Peeking from under the duct tape covering my eyes, I could see about ten construction workers and a woman standing outside the door. They looked surprised and compassionate. The woman said over and over, it was a miracle that she heard me and sent the man to check it out. They freed my hands and cut the duct tape off my head. I was in my pyjamas with bare feet. They asked me where my shoes were. I told them I didn't have any because the men took me from my bed. One construction worker started to pick me up and I warned him that I was covered in urine from the waist down. He said that was not important and carried me uphill along a rough wooden path to the construction office. Soon they moved me inside to a warmer place, a conference room with a bathroom and a small shower where I was able to clean myself up. The shower felt wonderful. They gave me some sweatpants, warm socks, a wool poncho and flip-flops. What a blessing these turned out to be. For the next two days, I kept the wool poncho wrapped around me for warmth and to hide my pyjama top. When I finished dressing, they set a plate of rice, chicken and potatoes in front of me. They urged me to eat, insisting I must eat for health. I ate a few bits of the potatoes and rice, but I took the large piece of chicken and discreetly dropped it in the wastebasket. They were so sweet, I didn't want to offend them by refusing their kind hospitality. The workers scurried around me. I told them that Adrian was still with the robbers. The construction workers said Adrian was the owner of the building and construction project. I thought we were talking about two different people, but they produced a flyer from Adrian's clinic, Find Health Ecuador. The flyer had his picture on it. It was the same person. The Red Cross arrived first and started to give me a physical exam. Then police and special detectives came and I begged them to please call Vilcabamba police and have them go to the house and check on Don. As the police led me from the construction site to their vehicle, I looked up at my surroundings for the first time. I was at Adrian's apartment building. I pointed up at apartment 2B and said to the police officer, Adrian lives in that apartment. The police officer paid close attention and wrote it down. Then I looked ahead of me and there, walking toward me, was Carly. Adrian told us they broke up in February and she had returned to Los Angeles, California, where her family lived. I had not seen Carly in more than five months and I didn't know that she was back in Ecuador. I walked over to her, gave her a hug, told her that Adrian and I had been kidnapped the night before and that Adrian was still with the kidnappers. She broke into tears. I asked her when she had returned to Ecuador and she said she had been here for five days. She knew Adrian was with us. She had been talking with him and was waiting for him to return to Cuenca. 
The female detective who had been questioning me in the construction office walked up and asked who this was. Carly told the detective she was Adrian's wife. That was a surprise to me. The police took me away as the detective continued questioning Carly. I was taken to a small police station where they allowed me to email Don. He emailed right back. He was okay and was surrounded by many detectives and neighbours who were helping him. The police told me they were making arrangements to transport me back to Vilcabamba, but it would take several hours. I was taken to a second police station. I was still thinking they were transporting me back to Vilcabamba, and this was a temporary stop on the way home. As I walked into the police station, I saw Carly sitting on the couch in the waiting room. I walked over and sat next to her. What is going on? She queried. She continued, saying that they told her anything she said could be used against her in a court of law. I shared that I didn't know what was going on. One of the detectives motioned for me to come into another office and I knew they were not happy that I talked with Carly. They closed the door and an officer got close to my face and told me in a very serious tone that Adrian had planned the entire kidnapping and that he had already confessed. He said, Adrian is not your friend. I could not believe what I was hearing. Our friend Adrian, who had helped us with so many of our needs, ate at our home with us and was at the hospital when I had pneumonia. Adrian was right there when Don had a heart attack. He had consulted with the hospital cardiologist and Don's doctor had wanted Adrian to work with him in his practice. This was the same Adrian who had gone to Quito with us in March to help us with our visa extension and drove Don and I the nine hours back to Cuenca into the wee hours of the morning. This was the same Adrian who, just a few weeks before, went with my three grandchildren and me to see monkeys in the wild and to the Galapagos Islands with us a week later. The detective told me Adrian was not a doctor. Really? He was so knowledgeable about medicines and was teaching doctors. I had pictures of him giving PowerPoint seminars. I was reeling from the information. I was asked to tell my story over and over. I was taken to a third police station where I was to help the office workers to prepare a written statement about what happened to me. They explained about the protection program that we would be in for the next year. I gave my statement with the help of a translator and when it got very late, the translator left. By this time, special agents who took very good care of me and made me feel safe, surrounded me. It became apparent that I would not be going home that day. It was already dark. They offered to allow me to talk with Don on the phone, but it was after 9.30pm. I knew that Don had not slept the previous night, so I told them I would talk with him in the morning, that he needed his sleep and that I was okay. They finally took me to a secure hotel close to the main police station. They told me to let the front desk know if I needed anything, food, water, or if I was frightened. They were in contact and could return to the hotel in a matter of minutes. The detective and I walked slowly up the stairs to my room. He said goodnight and left me alone. I locked the door and looked at myself in the bathroom mirror for the first time. I was surprised to see bruises and scrapes on my face. I didn't remember being hurt. It must have happened when I fought against the two men as they were dragging me into the car the night before. My hair was frightful. Duct tape did strange things to my hairstyle. I wet my hair a little and finger brushed it to try to improve the look. 
I used the toothbrush and toothpaste provided by the hotel and lay down in bed, fully clothed. I thought how wonderful to hear the noise of children playing on the stairway and to have a bed to lie down in, to be alive. I praised the Lord, left my safety in God's hands and allowed myself to drift off to sleep. I was startled awake by rapping on the hotel room door a short time later. I sat up and asked who it was. A man's voice identified himself as a detective. He said he had to talk with me and to open the door, please. I limped to the door and let him in. He put his cell phone in front of my face. There was a picture of a man on the phone. He asked me if it was the man who had entered my bedroom. I said yes. He changed to another picture and asked if it was the man who had roughed Don up. I responded with a frightened yes at the second picture. He seemed satisfied and left. My heart was pounding in my chest as I lay down to try to sleep a little more. I did finally go back to sleep for a little while. I woke up about 4am with an aching foot and realised there was probably something wrong and I should have it x-rayed. I slowly made my way down the stairs to the front desk and told the person on duty that I needed to talk with the police. Three detectives arrived quickly and I told them I needed an x-ray of my foot. After a quick stop at the police station, we went to the hospital emergency room. That hospital was very small. The doctor looked at my foot and took a few details. He gave a paper to the detective and we went to another hospital where my foot was x-rayed and wrapped. The slamming of the car door that night had fractured a bone in my foot. The detectives told me I had to testify before the judge. After a quick breakfast, we went to the courthouse parking lot. Another carload of detectives were already gathered there. All but one of them went into the building, telling me they would return for me when it was my turn. Detective Leo stayed with me in the front seat of an undercover police vehicle. Leo encouraged me to lean my seat back and sleep, but after trying for a few minutes, I decided I couldn't sleep. Leo, on the other hand, had no problem sleeping the hours away. I kept myself so busy fighting to stay in faith during the 12 hours of my captivity that I did not cry or allow myself to be weak. I took deep breaths and worked on staying surrendered to God and in faith that God would do what was right. From the time I was discovered, I was distracted with giving my story, moving from place to place, medical exams, the pain in my foot and waiting in the courthouse parking lot for six hours. The Special Forces SWAT team of Ecuador kept me updated on who they had caught. I remember trembling the entire time. I could not stop trembling. I felt numb inside, except when, after six hours sitting in the court parking lot, Adrian, Carly and two men walked across the parking lot in front of our vehicle. They were surrounded by camouflage-dressed military men carrying big guns. I recognised the one who had been with Don. I hit the leg of Leo and told him, There's Adrian and the other kidnapper. Then I burst into tears, my hands over my eyes, sobbing. Leo was so alarmed. He said, No, Sherry, you are the strong one. Don't cry. You are strong. I made myself stop. Then several very happy detectives and police officers came to my side of the car. They told me Adrian had just confessed everything to the judge and I didn't have to go before the judge to tell my story now. Leo explained to the detectives that I cried when I saw Adrian. One detective said to me, Don't you want to kick him? Don't you want to hit him? No! I'm just so sad, sad that he ruined his life for nothing. 
that he would hurt us. After leaving the courthouse, the police took me to the airport where there was a large police helicopter sitting on a side runway. After several pictures in front of the helicopter with many police detectives, police officials, the helicopter pilots and military men dressed in camouflage, they told me they would fly me in the helicopter to Loha. It is normally a three-hour drive from Cuenca, but would be less than an hour in the helicopter. I really enjoyed the ride. It was a clear day and we floated over the mountains as though we were riding on a cloud. The Andes Mountains are the most beautiful mountains I have ever seen. The helicopter set down in a school soccer field and, with the helicopter still running, the three detectives and I exited the helicopter and ducked our heads to hurry away. The detectives were very happy and asked if I liked the ride. I said yes! They had given me a very special gift and made me smile. They took me to the home of one of the head men in the Special Police Division in Loja, Ecuador. After dinner and a shower, they showed me to a bedroom and I went right to sleep. In the morning after breakfast, they took me to the commando centre. It was Friday at 10.30am, two days after my release, before Don and I were finally together. After more photos, we were allowed to go home. What happened to Don? While the kidnappers were in the house, Don realised that there was nothing that he could physically do to stop them. He knew that only God could set us free and deliver us. He was thinking about what he could do to get free quickly. As they were duct taping Don's hands, he held them apart a little. After that, they dragged him into the bedroom and someone tied rope over top of the duct tape and locked him in the house. Don heard two cars drive away and immediately began the task of getting free so he could get to the police as soon as possible. The kidnappers had taken our car and cell phones. With space to manoeuvre, Don was able to free his hands from the tape. The deadbolt on the front door requires a key to open it, even from the inside, and the kidnappers had taken all the keys. First, he tried to remove the bars from one of the windows, but he soon realised that would take too long with the limited tools available. So he decided to take the lock off the door with a small pair of scissors in the bathroom. Thankfully, the screws of the deadbolt lock were a bit loose already. Once the lock was off, Don went to the neighbour's house for help. Two neighbours took him to the police station. They returned to the house with two or three officers. Special detectives from Quito, who were in Loja on other police business, were notified and went to the house right away. Soon it was filled with detectives. Don was awake all night with a house full of police officers while the investigation took place. About 2am, another neighbour came to translate for Don and stayed with him the rest of the night, along with the officer assigned to the house. The neighbours were amazing. They stayed with Don, gave him food and were emotionally supportive throughout the horrible ordeal. They called Don a hero because he thought ahead, kept his cool and got the police involved quickly. Afterthoughts. The entire ordeal is surreal. We were heartsick when we found out that our dear friend, Adrian, had arranged the abduction for money. The police told me that he is not a doctor, though he did go to UCLA. He was travelling around giving cardiology seminars to Ecuadorian cardiologists. He and a North American man started Find Health Ecuador, a clinic for medical care, dental care and radiology. Many people have expressed their shock at the kidnapping and Adrian's involvement. He was very personable and persuasive. 
The police stopped Adrian driving our car just a few miles from our house. When they stopped him, they found the ransom note in the car that he was on his way to deliver to Don. Adrian's girlfriend, Carly, had seen the ransom note a month before the kidnapping, but did not report it to the police. That is why they arrested her as an accomplice. The day I was released from the storage room, she introduced herself to a detective as Adrian's wife, but the detectives told me Adrian also has an Ecuadorian wife. I can only assume how the police were so quick to find the kidnappers. Within 24 hours, all but one of the five people involved with the abduction were apprehended and locked up. The man who entered my bedroom and held me down in the back seat of the car is in Peru. He was not currently in custody, but the Ecuadorian police were working with the Peruvian government to extradite him. The police have assured us that the others would not be released from prison on bond and we were now safe. To give some more background, I need to tell you about a friend of mine. She and I have spent a lot of time together and she has been a guest in our home. She went with us to Cuenca to help me pack and move out of our rental house. Adrian visited at that time and met her. He sat there at our Cuenca house talking about how corrupt the local police are in Ecuador. Adrian told us never to go to the police if someone is kidnapped. Just pay the money and be quiet or it could be worse. After listening to them compare negative stories and experiences about both United States and Ecuadorian police, I finally asked them to change the subject as Don and I were getting very uncomfortable. I knew Don would worry more about me every time I was away from him. They stopped. This was not the first time Adrian told us about the police in Ecuador. He had said if someone robs you, never report it to the police. He said the police only wanted to find the criminal so they could get half the stolen goods. Then the robber would return to the house to get more and might even kill the people because he might be angry that they reported the robbery. Adrian was supposed to go with us to our new rental in Vilcabamba when we moved our things from Cuenca. He showed up the morning of our move, helped us pack and asked me why he wasn't going with us. I said that he was welcome, but I thought he had other plans. It was a misunderstanding, so he said he would visit over the weekend. When my friend found out at work that I was kidnapped, she immediately suspected Adrian of the kidnapping and went right over to our house. Post-ordeal and recovery. When I returned home, I was fairly numb during daylight hours, but felt a constant dread. I still trembled internally, and I began to identify how I felt by saying it as if I just got over the flu, so weak inside, like my emotions had the flu. I have never felt so weak, so uncertain, and so fragile. Good friends came to help. One woman helped me write a summary of the story to send out to the local community through the Gringo email list. I also contacted the Gringo Tree internet site that is read by people in many parts of the world who are interested in Ecuador. We did this to help people know the truth about what happened and to dispel the abundance of misinformation that was circulating. This helped me when I went into the little city of Vilcabamba to not be bombarded with questions and have to relive it over and over to well-meaning, curious strangers. I still fight the post-trauma issues in the same way that I dealt with being captive in the storage room, with scripture and songs. I have an increased level of fear at night, of night noises and the dark. Turning out the light is hard. I am able to sleep in the same bedroom now, and praise God, I am at home. 
I decided to replace the fearful memories with a new picture. When the memory of the kidnapper entered my room grips me, I purposefully picture the door bursting open and mighty angels of God entering the room full of comfort and protection. A few days after I returned home safely, Don said he was sitting outside when the wind blew the door of the house, slamming it. He said he jumped from the noise as though someone had shot him with a gun. We are both jumpy. This too, I am giving over to God, and I know it will improve with time. After three weeks, Don and I were sleeping a bit better. I am able to walk on my foot now, though it will start aching when I have been on it too long. I have had more peace at night. I still have moments when I feel I will burst into tears and I am aware that I tremble inside when I am not actively fighting it. While captive, I was focused and determined. When I was released from the storage room, the distractions kept me busy and unable to fortify myself with scripture and songs. Now I am once again focused and determined not to be a victim, but to use this trial as a witness to the awesome love of our God. The key for my recovery is this scripture. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. Isaiah chapter 26 verse 3, King James Version. To God be all the glory. A reflection associated with this story comes from The Acts of the Apostles, page 146. It is the last night before the proposed execution. A mighty angel is sent from heaven to rescue Peter. The strong gates that shut in the saint of God open without the aid of human hands. The angel of the Most High passes through and the gates close noiselessly behind him. He enters the cell and there lays Peter, sleeping the peaceful sleep of perfect trust. Kidnapped was written by Sherry Yohi, author of Ad Life, gluten-free recipe book. You can visit adlifetoday.com for more information. You've been listening to the book reading program by 3ABN Australia Radio featuring Get Ready for a Miracle. For more information about this book, visit remnantpublications.com. Remnant.